the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, it, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he pinned me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If it's Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name, that happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. two-man power trip of wrestling and you are listening to feature episode number 12 of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always i'm joined by my tag team partner the one and only jp john paz and john today joining us for this feature interview promoting a book i didn't think this guy talked now he writes a book is the one and only homicidal suicidal genocidal death defying sabu on the two-man power trip of wrestling john this is an interview that took a long time for you to get together and when i mean a long time i mean 
a long time. But finally, Sabu is able to grace the airwaves, promoting his book, Sabu, Scars, Silence, and Superglue, which has been out for, uh, for a couple of months. But you know what, Sabu, the stories are inside of this book that could last a lifetime. We know a lot about Sabu from talking to the franchise Shane Douglas on the Triple Threat Podcast. We've learned a lot about their inner workings. But, John... Tell us what we have to look forward to today in this uh, this kind of like uh, run-and-gun style interview you got here with Sabu. Very, very cool stuff to finally be able to get him on is amazing. Think about this. I think it's been just about two years uh, back and forth with him as far as, yeah, let's do it, and then it doesn't come through. And for whatever reason or another, not all his fault, some some my fault as well, but just going back and forth and back and forth and, and when can we do this, not do this. Uh, you, I've literally probably seen him in person 10 times back and forth, and he'll always say, hey, John, yeah, I remember uh, I owe you one, I owe you one or something. You know, like, you know, basically alluding to the fact that I'm going to come on for an interview, going to do the interview. So it's finally great to get that uh, done and, and get that checked off the list because I've had his name on my list for about two years, I want to say, back and forth um, that we've been going. And it was even one night at, uh, last year in Philly, we were talking backstage uh, at a wrestling show and talking. He's like, I still owe you that interview. I was like, yes, you do. Thank you. You got a great memory. You know, let's get this, you know, let's get this going. So it was a perfect kind of timing when we did it because we do get to talk about this book and we do kind of get behind the silence of Sabu. Because like you said, he you never really heard him talking. It's kind of bred into him from the chic. You kind of have that intimidation factor, you like this this mysterious factor, this dangerous factor, that you're not talking, you're not cutting promos, you are just being silent, but scary, silent, but deadly, silent, but violent. I mean, it really, really is such an interesting way to go about wrestling because you, know, you see a lot of guys talking and cutting promos and that's how they sell their tickets that's how they get the people into the building but never was the case with Cebu. he was always that guy that, that did the homicidal suicidal genocidal death-defying moves that got the people talking like uh, shane has said to us on the show you know Cebu breaks tables innovates his whole style basically encapsulates ECW more than anybody else. And all of a sudden, a lot of the guys started copying him and going through tables and using chairs and doing this crazy offense. But the only thing was, those guys can't pull it off as good as Sabu can. Sabu's just an amazing athlete, an amazing wrestler, an amazing thinker, an amazing innovator. So when you have people copying you, they don't kind of copy you as well because he is the, the Houdini of hardcore. I mean, not a lot of guys can kind of pull that off. And obviously, it shows what a tremendous professional wrestler that Sabu really was. Yeah, oh my gosh. I mean, just really the guy that made everybody kind of realize what ECW was as a promotion because you think of the blood and guts, you think of the uh, you know the barbed wire. Well, you know what? Let's stick with the barbed wire part of it because that's the first imagery most of us saw of Sabu was the barbed wire matches and, and the crazy bumps that he was taking and just the absolute mayhem that was caused whenever he hit the ring. And, you know, you'd see his name kind of in those, uh, you know, the results column of the Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and you'd be like, Sabu, you know, and then you'd read a little thing like, oh, you know, related to the Sheik, wow, that's really cool. But when we finally got to see him in ECW, yeah, I think that's a lot of people's first memories of that promotion. And, uh, my God, did he set the table for what would become, you know, what we all know now as ECW. 
But, John, let's talk about the book here for a minute because, you know, yeah, you said it. He doesn't really talk much. Um, even now, I mean, he's still he, – when he talks, people listen. Mm-hmm. I can say that much. But this book itself, I mean, it's just really cool for some of these stories that nobody has ever heard. I mean, he's done a few shoot interviews, and I mean a few like maybe two. So these are stories in this book that nobody knows, and I think that that was something when you talked to him. Like, I don't know, did he feel that pride to kind of be able to finally speak his words, but this time through the, uh, you know, the words inside a book? Yeah, you know, he definitely opens up a bit, and it's definitely surprising in, in a lot of aspects because he never talked, you know, and you don't really get those stories. Like you said, he barely did shoots, and when he did the shoots, just kind of shorter answers, didn't really want to open up, didn't really want to give up much. Not much of a talker anyway in regards of being a very social guy. You know, it, it is, of course, a part of the gimmick that he was quiet. But in real life, you know, behind the scenes, he really is kind of a quiet, shy guy. And he kind of kept to himself. So it's so interesting. And that's why this book is so cool that you're going to get these stories never before heard. Obviously, you haven't really heard the true backstory of Sabu. And if you have, it's not in his own words. So that's why this book is so cool and so different and so unique, just like Sabu himself. And you mentioned Barbed Wire. We do talk about Born to be Wired. We do talk about Terry Funk. Very, very cool stuff. And when you think, like you said, when you think about Sabu, a lot of people do think about the chairs and the jumping off the ropes and the unique, crazy moves. But a lot of people definitely think about that match with Terry Funk. And obviously a lot of people do think, about the barbed wire and the scars and him just being covered in blood and just, you know, that kind of imagery, like you were mentioning when you think of Sabu and, you know, we always say that Shane Douglas is ECW. Well, Shane is basically, you know, the kind of like the godfather of ECW, so to speak. I know a lot of people say Terry Funk, but really Shane is the guy that kind of set it off. But I believe Sabu encapsulated that style more than anybody. When you think ECW, you think of that crazy style, you think of it being hardcore, you really kind of think of Sabu above anybody else. I know some people say, oh, what about Sam or Tommy Dreamer? No, I, I honestly would say, you know, you got to think of Shane when you think of ECW. But when you think of that ECW hardcore extreme style, Sabu is the first name that's got to jump in your mind. Absolutely. And again, the book is Sabu Scars, Silence, and Superglue, the Sabu Autobiography, a life story of a wrestler who changed the face of professional wrestling as we know it. 400 pages of brutality, four words and guest passages by Rob Van Dam and Taz, plus Bill Alfonso, Tommy Dreamer, Raven, Al Snow, Mikey Whipwreck, Just Incredible, The Blue Meanie, Pablo Marquez, Kevin Sullivan, and so many more. And the pictures inside of this book are by the legendary ECW photographer, the great and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, George Tahinos. One, I'm mean, seriously an asset to the uh, the art of professional wrestling photography. So this book has it all. Go out and find it. You can head on over to ecwsabu.com and get the book. You can order it there. You can get it autographed. It's a uh, great opportunity to own a piece of history in your hands with the Sabu book. Now, John, I'm going to let you throw it over to the interview, but before you do that, give us a couple more little keys to the game here that we can look forward to uh, with Sabu, and then please, you know, you do the honors and throw it over to the interview. The thing that really I enjoyed is the the beginning of Sabu, and people are going to say, oh, you know, why that over Sabu? I just love kind of learning how he became Sabu, and you talk about his training with the Sheik, who was at Farhat, and that style that he had it was so unique but he says that basically the sheik 
who is his uncle, said, you know, you got to be trained technically. You have to actually have a wrestling background. You have to know the basics before you just go out there and start doing moves and start getting creative. I want you to learn the basics. So I just thought that was so interesting. We go into his relationship with his uncle and, and his training and, and how he came up in the business. But then also how he kind of once he got down the basics and once he you know he got his ass kicked for a while and and was you know being an enhancement for a lot of guys and and doing a lot of jobs once he did that he started developing his own move set and started thinking outside the box and started doing his own thing and becoming unique and really standing out and I thought that was a really cool part of this interview and you know Sabu becoming Sabu so to speak and I just thought that was so cool and so great and obviously when we do talk about ECW and we do talk about Taz and Shane Douglas and Rob Van Dam that and obviously Terry Funk as well who I mentioned before that is some great stuff I just love kind of digging deep with Sabu and getting you know about 30 minutes or so of an interview out of him that you basically never expect to get five because he's not much of a talker so it is very, very good stuff. And obviously, go back in the archives from a couple of weeks ago. You can listen to the Rob Van Dam interview where he talks a lot about his training and a lot about Sabu. And shockingly, the great advice Sabu gave him, because we joked around the interview that Sabu was not much of a talker. Well, he definitely connected with Rob Van Dam. We talked to Rob about it. And then in this interview, we to end up talking to Sabu about his chemistry with Rob as well. So definitely, definitely going to be an awesome, awesome interview. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the uh, death-defying maniac himself, the Houdini of hardcore, the former ECW World Heavyweight Champion, ECW Tag Champion, ECW Television Champion, ECW FTW Champion. Of course, I am talking about the homicidal, suicidal, genocidal. Sabu. Time ECW World Tag Team Champion. He is a former ECW World Television Champion, and of course, he's a two-time former ECW World Heavyweight Champion. He is the Death Defying Maniac, 
the Houdini of hardcore, the homicidal, the suicidal, genocidal, Sabu. Sabu, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Now, obviously, the first thing i got to ask you about is the book, and of course, it is called Sabu, Scars, Silence, and Superglue. It is your autobiography. i got to just first ask you, how did this book kind of come about? Because obviously, you're kind of a man of silence. You don't say too much things, so to have a book like this come out, it's pretty uh, pretty big. It's pretty important. Uh, it kind of came out of an accident. You know, uh, I was telling somebody a couple stories, and they said, well, you should you know, put them down. And I did, and then that kind of turned into a book. So were you hesitant at all? Because obviously, you know, you have been in the wrestling business for a long time, since the mid-'80s. I mean, you debuted all the way back in about 85 or so. I mean, this is 30-plus years in the wrestling business. Were you hesitant to do the book? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, I'm old school. I don't want to expose the business or expose myself, but uh, I just gave in to it, so fuck it. <laughs> so what was the experience like with the book? Did you enjoy it? Uh, no, it was a pain in the ass. And I don't like to see what I'm saying to people as quotes, you know, when I say them, when it looks like, you know, a lot of my facts are wrong, but my memories are wrong too, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So, so um, I was correct on a few things and, and most of it is pretty much accurate. Just that when I actually see the actual truth, I go, man, I, I don't want that said about me or I don't want to say that. <laughs> but then I did, I went ahead and did it anyways. So the actual process, you know, of writing the book, you said kind of a pain in the ass and, and it was kind of annoying to do it, but how long did it take you? Uh, over a year. And as, you're kind of, and as you're kind of, you know, going through and going, is this like a process where you're talking to um, the author, Kenny Casanova, you're talking to him every day or, you know, how's that whole process going? Uh, it wasn't every day. Um, it was every couple of weeks. And, uh, He's very good at what he does. You know, he made a lot of my stuff. I mean, uh, like the way I tell the story, it didn't make sense sometimes, but uh, he made it make sense. So when this book, you know, comes out, and, and obviously, you know, it's, it's available, com, which is WOHW Publishing, it's available. I know you have it available um, on your site as well. When people kind of or, or, you know, wanting this book and they're coming after this book and they're saying, oh, I got to hear what Sabu has to say. Are you surprised at all by the reaction that it's been getting? Yeah. I, uh, yeah, a lot of people don't think I can read anyways, but and I really can't. <laughs> 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 I only read what I want to read. <laughs> but a lot of people think I can't read, so they go like, well, who wrote it for you? You know, is it a coloring book? You know. <laughs> and I got, a, I got a coloring book coming out. <laughs> oh, yeah, what's that about? It does a coloring book, you know, because everybody thinks I'm a retard, so I'm I act like a retard, right? Make a coloring book. <laughs> Might as well make money off of it, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Are you kind of surprised at all that so many people, because I've seen a lot of people and a lot of interest. Are you surprised that so many people are interested in the book and, and are interested in what you have to say and what you wrote? Yeah, I'm very uh, surprised by that. Uh, I really didn't think anybody cared what I said anyway. They, I don't think they do. They're just because I haven't, haven't said much in the public. They just want to listen to what I got to say. And then when they find out it ain't shit, then it ain't shit. <laughs> and you're like, we've talked about it. I know in, in private a few times, you're not a lot, a lot of, um, you don't, you're not the kind of guy that likes to talk a lot. You're not the kind of guy that likes to spill the beans or, or whatever. So doing this book, it kind of goes against a little bit uh, of yourself. Was that okay with you? You know, or, or is it still kind of, fi- you're fighting with that a little bit. I'm, I'm still fighting with it. Uh, when the when the checks come in a little bit big, bigger, then uh, I won't I won't uh, regret it as much. <laughs> hmm. 
Now, obviously, like I, like I said, it's just strange for me to see uh, what I say come out in print because sometimes, uh, you know, I got a dirty mouth or bad vocabulary, you know, and uh, and it's funny for the moment, but when you see it in print, it's not that funny to me. Right. You know, there's obviously so many fans out there that are interested in Sabu, and like you said, you're kind of fighting the, the, the thing where it's almost like your gimmick was that you were silent for a while and you don't really, you know, didn't really like to talk it's or the, cut the thing, the, the thing with that was it, it, was, it, it turned into a gimmick, but it wasn't a gimmick. I didn't talk in public because I'm not comfortable talking in public and crowds and all that. So, uh, my uncle, you know, said to try to get away with it the way he did by having a mouthpiece. But when I don't have a mouthpiece, you know, I, I got to talk and I, I just don't like doing it. So, uh, I refuse to speak in public. And, uh, that wasn't because I couldn't speak English or I couldn't talk. I just refuse to talk. I don't like talking. Yes. Yes, I know. We've talked about that several times. You said, hey, I don't really like to talk. I don't really like to do podcasts, or I don't really like to do interviews. So I thought it was great. It's like, oh, wow, this book is coming out. Maybe we could finally get you on and maybe get you talking a little bit, right? Right on, right on. Now, you, you mentioned, obviously, your uncle, the legendary Ed Farhat, the Sheik, the original Sheik, you know, the legend of professional wrestling. Was he always kind of you know a mentor to you, a guy that you were like, man, I want to follow in his footsteps? Well, yeah, of course. You know, he was he was the top of the world, and uh, and he wasn't a big man. And uh, you know, uh, I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, of course, I wanted to be like him. You know, of course. And you said he wasn't a big man, but yet he had the reputation, almost like a big man, almost like an Andre the Giant, where you're scared of the guy, and, and you know, you're just afraid of him when you well, look at him. He, he said to me before, he goes, you know, Andre the Giant is six foot, you know, seven foot tall, and this nail in my hand makes me seven foot tall. <laughs> he was a scary. He was a scary dude for, for sure. Yeah, when when I watched him wrestle when I was younger, I didn't think he was cheating. I just thought he was surviving. You know, he's wrestling these giant guys in the way you can wrestle a giant guys by stabbing them or something. You know. <laughs> yeah. Were you ever, you know, appalled or shocked by some seeing some of the blood, or, or is that something that got got you even more into it? Uh, what got me more into it, but at first I was shocked when I was a little kid, three, four years old, I was very shocked. But then when I got around 10 or 11, I said, wow, that's sweet. It's, it meant uh, the guys are trying hard. So when you broke in and you're getting into the business, he's the one that's primarily trained you and got you ready for wrestling and basically taught you all the basics? Yes. Well, I, I did five years of amateur wrestling, and that was to prepare me for, for what he had next. And then uh, then he trained me from day one, you know. He didn't train me in amateur wrestling. I learned that in school. But when I came, you know, came out to him to, to wrestle, uh, every day was with him. How does that go about? Because obviously with him, you know, he had his certain style. Is he treat, you know, treating you like a normal student? Is yeah, he so check it out. Like it's like this. He had his style after he learned how to wrestle. He didn't have a style before, before he learned how to wrestle. So he taught me the way he was taught. You learn how to wrestle first, and then you develop into a character or gimmick as time goes on. You can't, you can't blueprint it on day one because the, the way you feel on day one is not the way you're going to feel two, day, two years later when you're a different body type or taller, you know, different color or whatever, you know. So, you know, uh, I forgot what I was saying. About his style, <laughs> him training yeah, you. Yeah, style. but he wasn't the Sheik from day one. He was a regular first match wrestler for a couple of years. And then when he became the Sheik of Araby, then he took on the, the Sheik uh, persona, you know, like a, a, a king, you know, and then each year it progressed differently. And same with me. Like when I first started wrestling, I was Terry SR. And I don't know what the SR stood for. My uncle named me that, but I just took it and, and didn't ask questions. But uh, hmm. 
for the first five years, I was the first match guy. Didn't leave the ring. Uh, didn't do nothing off the ropes. You know, drop kick if I was lucky. You know, backdrop if I was even luckier. But uh, it was all mat wrestling and boring stuff that you have to learn as a green young wrestler. If you don't know that stuff, you cannot be a main eventer. You're definitely right on that. And then, you know, and then, like you said, like as you kind of move along and you develop yourself, then you de- develop your style but, and your moveset and everything. For lack of a better word, you got to find yourself. You know, you find out who you are and you move into that comfortable character or gimmick, you know. And how did you find yourself? Uh, after about five years, no, at seven years, when I went to Japan, it was two years after I became Sabu. Uh, my uncle, we went to Japan, and I was wrestling like everybody else was, you know, headlock, takedowns, all that normal stuff, no, nothing too crazy off the ropes. Then in Japan, he goes, now I want you to wrestle like you think I'm not watching. You know, so because when, when he wasn't watching, I would do my crazy stuff in the backyard to like a, a mattress or something. And he was watching me, but I didn't know he was watching me. And I didn't know he knew about it. But now he said, now do that stuff when you think I'm not watching. And that's what got me over. I did the stuff that came natural. That stuff that was taught to me, stuff, stuff that was like instinct. And where does that come from? I mean, because your moveset was so different for for that time period. And it just kind of was so original and so unique and so cool. Well, uh, like uh, like I said, but when, when he wasn't watching, I wasn't uh, Terry SR, the first match wrestler. I was uh, a mystery guy who did whatever he felt like doing, even if I killed myself. So when uh, he said, "Do what I do," what I do when he's not watching, I knew what he meant. He meant to be myself. Don't follow the rules no more. Make my own rules. And boy, did you get that move that is so unique but, but the thing and was, so different. For, for the first seven years, I did follow the rules. I didn't break none of the, the regular wrestling, you know, traditions, you know. You know, didn't break teeth on purpose and stuff like that. Right. You learned your craft first, and then you kind of adapted the style as you got more comfortable. And you found Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then things came out naturally without even thinking about it. They just happened, you know. Now, that is such a different style. I mean, the high flying with the risks and obviously using the ropes and the tables and chairs and stuff like that. Where does that come from? Is that literally just natural instinct? You're just kind of creating this thing on the fly? No, I used to watch, you know, Tiger Mask and Mil Mascaris and some of the Mexicans. And they do, they would do it all the time. But I made it, they did it so smooth it looked like they were dancing. So I said if that was rougher, it would look like an impact. So I try to make it look rougher instead of a dance. So cool. I mean, when you first kind of, you know, became big in the States and obviously with ECW and, and even FNW over in Japan, when you really started to kind of really start to become big, you were so unique and so different. Everyone was saying, man, this guy is the best worker in the world. The stuff that he's doing is light years ahead of everybody else. Did you feel that you were light years ahead of everybody else? Uh, No, no. I just, thought it was tough for me to get my stuff over without anybody knowing about it. But after they wrestled me once, uh, pretty much everybody gave in. They were easy. It wasn't like people were resistant anymore. Once I worked with somebody once, they they became very comfortable because I'm not to brag about myself, but I'm easy to work with. I try to make it look like I'm not easy to work with, but I am. Yeah, you would think with that style, everyone would kind of be thrown off by it a little bit, or or maybe not and, like that. Yeah, kind of they style. were, but they were, but most of the things was in the beginning was catch me or move or stay. They didn't have to do anything. You know, it wasn't like dance with me. I had to say stay here, and then boom, I hit myself, or catch me, boom, or move. Or, you know, those were things I could call in the ring without having a plan. 
Now, with your stuff, obviously, it's so innovative and it's so, you know, kind of out there for that time period if people didn't see it. Was most of that called on the ring or, or, or is that just the way you guys did it back then? No, that's the way we did it back then. Uh, a lot of times we weren't even able to talk to each other before the match. So, you, so if you didn't know how to basically wrestle, basic wrestling, that you weren't very good, you weren't going to have a good match, even if it was, um, you know, uh, a match where basic wrestling didn't even come in. You know, but you got to have that, that instinct and that knowledge of basic wrestling knowledge to, and then you could have a good match with almost anybody without talking to them. I just remember when you first came out, even when you did that whole Hannibal Lecter thing, you know, the not speaking at all, getting into ECW, being tied up, been just thinking like, man, you know, who is this guy? Who kind of came up with all that kind of stuff? Is that you or was that Paul Heyman coming up with that uh, extra I have stuff? To give, I have to give the credit to Paul Heyman on that one, on the Hannibal Lecter thing. That wasn't my idea. I hated it because it was too much work. Like, because when I was struggling in the chains before I got to the ring, I was already out of breath. I couldn't breathe no more. So when I got into the match, I was already tired when the match started. <laughs> <laughs> but but far- yeah, that, that was a that was a good gimmick to get me over. But that was Paul Paul's idea. Now, when he kind of says stuff to you, is that you guys working together to come up with that stuff, or is he giving you stuff and you just work with it? No, we're working together. He didn't give me shit. Know what he said one time? He goes. Uh, I got to talk to you before your match. I got to tell you, I said, I'm getting ready to go out now. He goes, okay, listen to me very carefully. I go, what? He goes, do something amazing. And I went, okay. He's like, what do you mean, do something amazing? <laughs> <laughs> that was the only advice he ever gave me for a match, was do something amazing. Any other, any other time, he knew I handled it. He never said, do this spot, do that spot. Nothing, never, never did that. O- only keep points in a match or something. somebody had to do a run-in or something. And everything else was, was all us. You know, he let us be artistic. Is that pressure at all that he's kind of saying, hey, just do something amazing out there? No, because I knew what he meant. He, 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 he meant to do like you do every night. <laughs> Don't slow down. You definitely didn't slow down. Was that ever something that the uh, your uncle ever said to you or Paul Heyman, like maybe maybe slow down a little bit, or did they well, love that style? Well, my uncle said, uh, once you broke that table, you put your foot in the grave. I go, what do you mean? He goes, you're going to break those tables until you die. And then uh, he's right. I've been breaking my tables ever since. So that was kind of a curse, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. Causing a lot of injuries. But, but, yeah, but that's a curse I accept. I, I, don't, I don't mind it. It's not a curse to me. It's painful, but it's not a curse. A curse, like, would, be, a curse would be making me talk. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like those tables, are while they are a curse and they're definitely painful, it is something that's definitely synonymous. The chairs and, and the table definitely something synonymous with you and your career. That's for sure. You know, one of the, the high points of my, my life was when, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly how many years, 10 or 15 years ago, Vincent, the whole company was motherfucking me for breaking tables, said I was killing the business. There's no way a table could be inter- interjected into a wrestling match and still be wrestling. And then about five years after that, I seen him and his son walk into the ring carrying a table in a table match against the Dudleys. <laughs> now, how fucking dumb is that, a table match? <laughs> I used a table during the match. Table matches came later. But for them to, to, just to have a table match, they missed the whole idea of me using a table. I used a table to help me win a match, not to have a table match. Exactly. Exactly. That is funny, and that is pretty ironic that uh, that they did that. Yeah, I mean, they both carried the ring. They looked like the Bushwhackers with their arms over their head. <laughs> the Bushwhackers <laughs> carried the table to the ring. And I think when they carried that table to the ring, they didn't realize it was going to be so heavy. <laughs> It is pretty ironic as, as far as that. And I just remember um, at one point in the you know mid-90s era, Bret Hart 
ended up going through the table and everyone was saying like, oh, he took that spot from Sabu. Did you ever kind of think like, you know, you not that you innovated necessarily the table spot because it did was before you, but you kind of popularized the table spot. Yeah, I made cheating legal. I made using the chair legal. I made breaking a table or furniture outside the ring legal, breaking furniture in the ring legal. I'm, I changed the rules, not on purpose. I'm not that proud of it, but, but yeah, I made cheating legal. And I mean also cheating a match by having a match with no rules. Now cheating, now cheating is not illegal. Because, you think, because it, everybody knows it's pro wrestling, and the more you can give them out of pro wrestling, the more they want, you know. Yep. They, they know it's cheating, and, but they don't, they don't know, they don't, they know it's cheating, but they also know it's not real. Do you think at ECW that you just fit that style like a glove, or do you think that they almost kind of adapted that style to you? Because it seemed like once you got there, they really ramped up, you know, quote unquote, the extreme, oh, but they really oh. ramped it up. Yeah, there was an extreme when I first got there. It was just hardcore, uh, hardcore as in bad lighting, shitty arena, and uh, they do gimmick <laughs> matches. But uh, when I came in, I added, uh, you know, uh, acrobats to that hardcore and made it extreme. There wasn't a word extreme until I came into it. Not that I like the word extreme. I like hardcore better because extreme, uh, I just don't like it. Too ordinary. Oh, okay. I can see that. Definitely too ordinary for, for somebody like you, for see, sure. Hard, hardcore means you get down to the basics and fight each other. Extreme means you use uh, out-of-the-ordinary weapons or something extremely different. But hardcore just means you get down bare knuckles fighting hard. As far as Paul Heyman and everyone saying, you know, he's a genius and this and that, do you think he's as much a genius as it's made out to be? No, because nobody would let him run away with their company the way Paul got way Todd Gordon let him run away with their company. He he got to do any first when he came into the company he kind of had to follow Todd Gordon's rules as in wrestling. But then when when I came into it we didn't follow anybody's rules and then so he let Paul do what he wanted to do because he thought Paul was a genius for bringing me in. But but nobody would have given him that credit if it wasn't for me and him hooking up and people seeing what he was really in his in his mind. I feel like so many people say, oh, creative genius, this and that. But he did have, like you said, he did have free reign by Todd Gordon, but he also did have quite the talent roster of guys. Obviously, yourself, Taz, Shane Douglas, Terry Funk. I mean, it's a pretty damn good list of talent that he had in ECW. Yeah, that that was like he was, we were lucky to be in the same, the right area all together at the same time. We were lucky. When you beat Terry Funk and you become the ECW champion and you know, basically, you know, he's a huge star. He's a huge name, obviously. But does that mean anything to you that you're the champion? They're kind of putting the company on your shoulder, or is that just more to more to the fans that they see that you're the world champion? Uh, honestly, it's more the fan thing. Like uh, those belts really mean nothing to me. Um, like they, they go, how did it feel to be NWA champion? It felt like nothing. It, they didn't pay me no more money. <laughs> I didn't hmm. eat. I didn't, I didn't eat better. I didn't fly first class. <laughs> <laughs> but the belts really mean nothing to the wrestlers uh, unless they're, they're delusional. You know, some wrestlers, they live by their belts or their titles, and they're delusional if they live by it. The only one that should live by their title is Kurt Angle as Olympic champion. That they can never say with a work. Right. Because when you win a belt, that's somebody's decision, not somebody's talent. Somebody says, I want this guy to be champion because he can draw money for me. Nobody says, nobody says, to the like Ed the Strangler Lewis, he he was the greatest wrestler ever, but he he made wrestling a work because nobody could beat him. So him being champion meant nothing no more. What meant something was making money. Championships don't mean shit. 
especially now that they, you can order them online for $135 and they're better than the ones we wear. <laughs> yeah, you're you know? right. Now, you know, before my uncle had a belt, I was like, wow, he's got a belt. Uh, you know, I want to look at it from 10 feet away. I don't even want to get close to it. Now everybody has their own belt. Yeah, which is crazy. You can just order them online for, you know. Yeah, and, and, they're, and they're, they're damn good belts. <laughs> Same, probably same, like you said, probably same quality belts too, yeah. Yeah, just about. But see, so it's not what the title is made out of. It's what it represents, you know. Uh, so if I was to be NWA champion back when Ric Flair was NWA champion, yes, that would mean something. But I was NWA champion after NWA died, and I was wrestling in front of 35 people. So that that, that title meant nothing to me. ECW title didn't mean much to me either, other than uh, – it was a historic match against Terry Funk. That meant more than, than winning the belt. When people said that I won the belt that day, I don't, I don't even remember that. All I remember but, was wrestling Terry Funk in a barbed wire match and, and sort of feeling like we made history. Yes. Yep. And you and Terry Funk, man, the chemistry you guys had in the history you made, not only that, but then the Born to be Wired match where, you know, you talk about getting hardcore, extreme, whatever. I mean, you guys took it to another level with, with that uh, barbed wire match. Right on. I agree. Uh, I enjoy wrestling him, and I owe him a debt for the rest of my life for what he's done for me. Was it easy working with him, or is he like you, where you think that he's on TV or as a fan level, you think he's hard to work with? No, he, he's, he's great. Uh, he was the first one from that era of wrestling that let me do my shit against him. Anybody else said, kid, you ain't doing that to me. And Terry said, let me have it. I said, okay, stay here, or catch me, or move. <laughs> then he started doing them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You think by him doing that kind of opened the door for everyone else to say, well, Terry Funk, wrestling legend, is, is allowing that. Maybe we well, should allow that. I hate to say this, and I hope he never hears this, but when he did a moonsault at 50 years old, that killed it for everybody else. Because then Van Vader did it, and then this guy did it, and that, the moonsaults became like headlocks. Terry Funk can do it. I can do it. And they were right. <laughs> it's almost like the super kick today. Everyone does the super yeah, kick. Yeah, yeah. Super kick. So it makes me throw up when I don't see it, when I see it, I throw up. I do also want to mention not only another great feud of yours uh, as far as Terry Funk, but I want to mention Taz as well because that just seemed like, obviously, it was a feud. You guys didn't touch each other for a long period of time. The barely legal match. You know, you guys were former tag champs together uh, a few years before that prior. But that feud just seems so important and so epic. And the fact you guys didn't touch, you guys always just had great chemistry and the great writing kind of mixed in. Was that just the, the perfect scenario for you two? Yes, because the chemistry we had in the ring was good. The chemistry we had out of the ring was terrible. We didn't like each other out of the ring, couldn't stand each other. So when he was calling me out every night, he, he meant it. He just knew I wasn't coming to the ring. That's the only reason he was so bold. Because <laughs> he knew I wasn't coming. That's the only reason he talked that shit about me. Because I let him. <laughs> but I like the guy now. We're, we're good good friends now. What was it then? It was just a clash of personalities? Guys just didn't get along outside but, of the ring? Uh, I, I, I don't know. It was, uh, he, he, he was saying, this is how you do things. And I go, okay, that's how you do things. And then he goes, no, that, that's how we do things. I said, no, that's how you do things. He wanted me to do things the way he did. Wear the same shoes, the same costume, same outfits outside. The, not the outfits, but like leather jackets and stuff like that. He wanted me to dress like him and act like him. Or, and I go, but who the fuck wants to look and dress and act like you? Who the fuck wants to be you? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, him, you know, that's him, he, his gimmick. 
Yeah, yeah, but, but he was the Tasmaniac at the time, so he's trying to get me to change into like a Tasmaniac type guy, and I wouldn't do it. I, I didn't even put him over, like say, yeah, I'll do it. I didn't, I didn't even do that. I said no. But anyways, there's a lot more to it than that story. But we we just didn't get to get get along outside the ring. We didn't travel together. We traveled for a couple of months together in the beginning, but that was it. The the last thirty years, I I've you know only been ten, two or three weeks of traveling, but uh, we never hung out together after the matches. He wasn't my type of guy to hang out with, and I'm definitely not his type of guy. It is interesting, and I always find that interesting with, with wrestlers, that they don't get along outside the ring, but when they get inside the ring together, they have great chemistry. It, 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 to me, it's always like, wow, I can't believe that they can have good matches together. Well, that's called being a professional. It's by putting your differences aside and giving, giving your best, you know, under any circumstances, even if you don't like this prick. <laughs> <laughs> and what about uh, Rob Van Dam? Obviously, friend of yours you team together you, you know saying obviously he, he trained with your uncle as well and you guys had a few together what about rvd what you know you guys and your chemistry how, how was that kind of able well, to mess so well that, that, that was that that was different i don't know we, we got along in the ring and out of the ring uh we didn't step on each other's toes i don't know how to describe it he, he doesn't act like i act he doesn't do what i do uh I, you know outside the ring we don't do like his his music is totally different than mine. His entertainment out of the ring is different than mine. You know, the only thing we have in common outside doing is we smoke pot, hmm. and we both agree on the same type of wrestling, what is good or not. Very similar styles as well, for sure. Sort of, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you could, we definitely influence each other. But if you really picked apart our matches, you say, he does this left, Sabu does that right. He does this left, he does that right. You know, you'll see that both of them. It, it looks the same, but it's not. Looks similar, but it's not. Very, very. It, it, to the you know to the fan, it seems similar, but it's not. He's kind of, I would say, maybe not as stiff or, or snug or whatever you want to say. As you, you seem a, a little bit more hard hitting, and obviously, um, he's got a little bit more the the karate game involved in his uh, offense. Right. Yeah, so I never incorporated kicks into my game, and he never incorporated chairs into his. You know. Yep. You know, we pretty much uh, stayed out of each other's uh, backyard. As I was so good friends now. Actually, he's my neighbor now. We both live in Las Vegas. Oh wow, awesome! Yeah, he's my neighbor. You guys reminisce about the old days of uh, ECW? Uh, not too much, but yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I just wanted to mention this quickly because obviously, you know, you mentioned Vince McMahon and WWE before. Was that something that you you liked your time in WB? You hated the time in WB because it was so weird that they they kind of brought you guys in. They were, seemed like they were going to do stuff with you, and then they didn't kind of give you guys enough of a platform and, and kind of do enough with ECW. Well, uh, they, they they lied to me. Uh, they they said they were going to keep Sabu the way he was and promote it to push it the way ECW was and the small venues and all that stuff, which I agreed with. I didn't want to do, do the big venues. I really had the more intimate stuff where the people think they're special instead of just part of the assembly line. But anyways, uh, no, I wasn't happy there. First couple of months was okay. Then they slowly wanted to completely change what they said and went from liking Sabu to not liking Sabu. So it was, uh, and I could feel it. And not feel it, they could see it, you know, shit. And then they wanted me to pass the torch. I didn't mind passing the torch, but they ripped it out of my hand before I was ready to pass it, you know. Who do they want you to pass it to? They didn't quite say exactly that one cocksucker, the Pope, that black prick. Mm-hmm. Yep. You could check that out. <laughs> but anyways, they wanted me to pass it to him. And I, I'm not probably with it until I wrestled him and found out he was a shit. 
Yeah, they try to do that whole new ECW, the new breed versus the ECW original as part of WrestleMania 23 and and obviously the TV show as well on sci-fi. Yeah, and uh, it it just looked like uh, WWE with different lettering. They used the ECW lettering. It it was the same show. It was no different. There was no extreme to it. There was no hardcore to it. We couldn't even – we didn't even have an extreme ECW extreme rules match every night. We had them every other night. Some nights we'd go we'd go to house shows and that one extreme match, no chair shot, no tables, no nothing. And Crazy. so I was afraid people uh, were thinking that we were being lazy or something, but we were told we could not break a table tonight, could not do this, could not do that. Before I could say, could I do it? Before, before I would just do it and they go, well, you can't do that again tomorrow. And I said, okay. So uh, instead of me doing stuff and them telling me I couldn't do it no more, they stopped me before I even could do it. Why is that? Like, did they want to try to kind of almost like kill ECW in in a, in a strange way? No, Why would they kind of nip you? Guys I, I don't think that? they're trying to kill. They're not trying to kill ECW. They're just trying to show that WWE style is, I guess, stronger. I guess I don't know. I don't know really. I don't know. I don't think they're trying to kill it. I mean, why would Vince spend money on it to try to kill something? Right, know? right. Yeah, he could have killed it by not using it again. Right, very true. It just seemed weird that it almost like it was like kind of trying to pump up this ECW, but then they kind of turned it into WWE Light. It was it was strange. Right. Yeah, I didn't quite get why he did it, why they brung us in, because after a couple months, like they completely changed. They said that it's another line what we said before. Like it's the business. It's not the business, you know. It's their business. It's not my business. Were you surprised at all when ECW went out of business and then, you know, a little bit later, WB ends up buying ECW? Did any of that surprise you at all? The buying part, yes. Because Paul was having everybody motherfucker Vince for two years, and then he t- turns out he was working with them and making getting fat on it, and we weren't getting fat. Were you lost weight. Yeah, oh, big time. My God, yeah. Were you guys pissed when you found that out? Yeah, because he was getting fat, and we were feeling sorry for him because he was—he said he was getting skinny. I should have known when he wasn't when he was getting fat. He was getting fat <laughs> because he goes, "I can't even." He goes, "Everybody's bitching about their checks. I can't even buy a pair of socks." So we go, "Oh, poor Paul!" And then we find out he's getting—you know—whatever he was getting from Vince for years. I remember when he I first paid, heard that. He, he was paid for a while just to watch their show and give an opinion. Vince paid him just for that. Yeah, he was a while he's, work, while he's working with us, while he's working for us. So crazy. Yeah, it's for a cocksucker. Anyways, I, I have to hit the road here because I got an airplane. I got to catch it on my way to New Jersey. But yeah. uh, it's yep. been great talking to you, and I'm sorry it took so long. And uh, if you could take out my swearing and my bad stuff I said, uh, it should be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. Just uh, one more thing. Just want to get your plugs out there. Obviously, the book is Sabu, Scar, Silence, and Superglue's autobiography, which is awesome. You can get it on wohw.com, WOH Publishing, and obviously you can get it through Sabu. But can you please do, do give us your plugs, your social media, and where they can get, get the book? Uh, you can get the book, if you can read, at uh, whatever you just said, .com, at, or uh, Sabu3 Twitter. Or Melissa Coates, uh, Facebook. All right, awesome. And, of course, one last time, that's Cebu, Scars, Silence, and Superglue. It is an awesome book, and it's going to be a journey into the homicidal, suicidal, genocidal career of Cebu. And Cebu finally got you on. Thank you so much, and uh, I really appreciate it. It's awesome. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, and please uh, forgive me for not being much of a salesman. But uh, thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.